Oh, man. Good morning. My name is Adam. We had a chance to meet. I'm going to go ahead, and before I dismiss the kids to go back and, and uh, get started uh, heading downstairs, I just want to offer an apology to all the kids. I really am, uh, I, I'm sorry that we are talking about, we're, we're saying back to school. I know that there is plenty of summer left. I know that we are, it's way too early to be talking about getting sent back to the clink, but we got to do it because adults, it takes them a long time to start to get with the program. So we had to start talking early. So kids, I apologize. You can head on back to uh, your, your teachers back there ready for you. So you can head back to join your class. And as they go, uh, we just like to send them with a breath prayer. Jesus, bless our kids. Oh, man. This, for me, was always the roughest part of summer. Because, you know, like, you want to wake up and, and, you know, have some joy because you're in summertime. But you also know what's about to come. And you can feel it just like, like, kind of like, you know, we, we talked about um, in uh, the Cain and Abel story a few weeks ago that, that sin is crouching at the door. I feel like school can crouch at the door like sin as well. And so I feel for the kids as they are, you know, man, what we do to kids Anyway, we uh, actually have some, some real stuff to talk about that isn't uh, nonsense. Uh, we are in a, 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 a series this summer that we're calling The Rest of the Story. And, and this is, is really kind of built out of just some, like my own childhood memories of riding in my grandfather's truck and hearing Paul Harvey, you know, the rest of the story and um, you know, being... Uh, just uh, uh, the blowtorch of the West is what they used to call 850 KOA in Denver. And if you ever listen to KOA in Denver, you, you also know, and I know I mentioned this before, but it just is stuck in my mind, um, that uh, the Shane Company is just off Arapahoe Road on, Empor uh, on Emporia Street, a half mile east of I-25, right? So this stuff gets st stuck in your head, just like Paul Harvey's voice, the rest of the story. And this summer, we're looking at a handful of stories in Scripture that when the rest of the story is understood, it helps us to make sense of the Bible, helps us to make sense of, of God and his invitation to relationship with us that he extends. You know, just the way that, that Harlan kind of brought us into worship, it, it's just, it, it's humbling to know that, that, that relationship, that invitation is extended from God himself. We see this extension as we unfold Scripture, as the gift of Scripture is unfolded. The gift we have and know as the Word of God shows us this invitation. The Word is one complete narrative, one unified story, beginning to end. This details God inter God's interaction with his creation, and it reveals his plan for his creation. This historical narrative that we have, the historical narrative that, that we are, are rolling through together, this volume, it unlocks the truth of who God is. It unlocks the truth of who we are and how we can live in created order with God. Now, when I apply the, the lens of my worldview to some of these stories, I, I get taken by surprise. And that's uh, the bulk of the stories that, that we are going through the summer are those very stories, the ones that I'm kind of taken by surprise, like what the he heck is going on? I'm trying to cut that out of my 
my sermons. I need to quit cussing in sermons. We can pray for me. But I like to take these stories on that at first glance, they, they make us say, what is going on here? Especially the ones that make me think that, that God did something that feels like it goes against his nature. Things that, that, that make me say, would God really do that? When we see the story, when we see the rest of the story, we're able to see, we're able to see beyond and past that, that cultural discrepancy and into the reality of the narrative that reflects his love for us. So, the story that we've got today, a couple of, of rough dates of, of the story that we're going to go through. The events, the, the historical events, the stuff that actually happened. We're going to be in the neighborhood of like 21 to, to 2000 BC, roughly a thousand years after the flood, a few hundred years before the Tower of ba or a few hundred years after the Tower of Babel, and about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. This story is like right smack in the middle of the BC timeline, from creation to the time of Jesus, like right smack in the middle. It is connected to the rest of, the, of Scripture, though, through this truth that we find in the Gospel of John. This is John 1, and, be, and this has really been our guidance for this whole series. John 1, verse 1 through 5, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. One story, one plan, from before creation to the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. And the reality, that reality was always intended to be, is what we have in Scripture. And that's what that foundational verse gives us. Now today we're talking about Abraham and Isaac, and, and the bulk of, of what we talk about will be Genesis 22, but we're only going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 22. Before we get to the rest of the story, we actually will be starting the rest of the story in Genesis 12. And, and this is after the Tower of Babel. If you remember, we, we, we dealt with this scripture a few weeks ago, and, and the, the, the end state of the Tower of Babel is, is a scattering. And in that scattering is the creation of tribes. And with that creation of tribes, we see the intent of God in creating the nation of Israel, the vehicle for redemption coming out of the Tower of Babel. One man in a tribe scattered is about to meet the living God. In Genesis 12, we see God call on Abraham, then known as Abram, to leave his family in Haran and go to the land that God will show him. God also promises in Genesis 12 to bless Abraham, something we know as, as the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that covenant has three parts. The three parts of that covenant is that God's going to give him land to settle, not just land to settle, but land to thrive upon, a lineage, he's going to give him a line, he's going to give him an heir, and then also a blessing on him and his, his lineage. That blessing is, is kind of twofold. One, it's a blessing of protection, but it's also a blessing of, of flourishing and of, of life and, and a family of like children that, 
uh, will be so many like sands of the, uh, uh, grains of sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. This is going to be a blessed lineage. What was required from Abraham in this covenant was faith. Faith in God, and by extension, faith in what God promises. Faith that God will do what he says that he will do. Now, following this call, and the step of faith on Abraham's part that led him to do what God asked, and this is a big ask, right? He left his family, and he went into the unknown. Genesis 12 through 14, though, shows after he did this, like a general, we're going to call it a general instability. That's really a, a, a pretty massive understatement of, of Abraham's life in Genesis 12 through 14. It was unstable. It was unstable because Abraham is trying to work out this paradigm of having faith in God, but also knowing the promise and not seeing the promise in front of him, so trying to do what he could do to, like, force the promise to come earlier. So we're going to call that instability. I know instability. Anybody else know instability? Now, although in this time, in Genesis 12 through 14, Abraham becomes a wealthy man by worldly standards. Like, the dude had a lot of stuff. Like, a lot of flocks, a lot, like, the the dude was rich. But he never finds that permanent settlement, and he doesn't have a child to carry on his lineage— not only to carry out his lineage, but to establish a nation through. A lot of this is because his wife Sarah could not become pregnant, which challenged his faith. But also, we see Abraham do a lot of crazy things. Like, one of the things that, that, that he does is, is in an attempt to protect himself, he tells some, some folks that are visiting because he's worried that if they find out that Sarah is his wife, that they're going to kill him and, uh, you know, make off with all of his stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, this is my sister. He tells them, this is my sister. Th- this is not, this isn't good, like, marital relations, right? This is not a good, but it demonstrates the, the instability of not being able to trust God to do what God says he, he's going to do. He took his protection in his own hands and said, well, that's my sister, not my wife, so don't kill me. What makes that kind of, like, that's, that's not good, right? We can agree on that. That's not, not positive, but it makes it worse that he does that twice during this time. Like, like once wasn't enough, he does it twice. But also, Sarah can't become pregnant. And so they're trying to work this out. How are we going to have an heir if this doesn't work? In the midst of this instability, though, in Genesis 15, we see that God renews his covenant with Abraham, promising him again to give him land the land of Canaan specifically to to his descendants, to greatly bless him and to make him into a great nation. So we, again, we see the covenant renewed. This renewal tested the faith of Abraham and Sarah because what they saw and what they promised were just so different. We're talking about a a barren womb with the promise of a child. How is this going to work out? Despite this renewed promise from Yahweh, from God, a son hasn't been born. There is no land with which to settle or to be secure. And so they do what many of us do, at least what I have done in this situation. They take matters into their own hands. In Genesis 16, Sarah is fearing that that she is not going to be able to provide Abraham an heir. In other words, she doesn't trust God. She doesn't have faith that God will do what God said that he would do. 
And so he gives her slave, to, to, her slave Hagar to Abraham so he can get her pregnant and make his own heir, which kind of solved one problem, but created a whole lot more. I mean, th- this stands to reason, right? If you sleep with your wife's slave and have a, a kid with her, that might create some tension. And tension they had. Later in the story, we're going to see that, that after God fulfills the promise, Hagar and Ishmael are sent out, which again causes a whole lot of other problems that we are even dealing with today. Uh, but that even that step was in order to protect her inheritance. At any rate, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're attempting, if not taking matters into their own hands, at the very least, they're attempting to force God's hand to give them the air, force God's hand to actually fulfill his promises, forcing God's hand to increase the, the, the timeline to their desired outcome. And that outcome, we find, was actually quite a disaster. Genesis 17, 1 through 14, we see again that God confirms his covenant promise. After all of this instability, God continues to confirm and reaffirm and renew his covenant promise to provide Abraham with an heir through Sarah. In, in Genesis 17, 2, he says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Before this declaration, though, Abraham had, had assumed that, that Ishmael, the, the child that, that came from his union w- with Hagar, he just assumed that Ishmael could serve as the promised heir because it's his, his son, and he was able to, to do what God couldn't do. He, he made his, his line um, extend at least through one generation. And so here's my promised heir. But God reveals in this that what Abraham could do in his own power was not what he intended that God would provide an heir in God's power, doing only what God can do. God reveals that the promised heir must come from the womb of Sarah. This is interesting because what happens here is we see that this birth would require the supernatural. A barren womb would require the intervention of the supernatural in order to conceive. We're starting to see reflections of something that points to an event that in 2,000 years will come to be with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that comes through a birth achieved through supernatural means. This really demonstrates that what we're dealing with is a gift from God. So Genesis 21 brings us up to date with three events that remind us back of the promise that God made to Abraham. The son that Yahweh promised is finally born. Isaac is born. With Isaac born, though, Sarah sees that her son is in danger of having to share his inheritance with Ishmael. So she sends Hagar and her son away. Really a a tragic story of betrayal. But this move also protected her family, her son Isaac, 
It protected the family inheritance, the chosen inheritor of Abraham. And another event that happens in Genesis 21, now that we have the heir, Abraham initiates a peace treaty with Abimelech. And this peace treaty allows Abraham's family the use of a well at Beersheba. What this well does is it provides an important resource for life and civil order. This, this establishment of a treaty that allowed Abraham and his, his people to have a well brings stability. So he has an heir, the ability to have a settlement, and this takes us to Genesis 22. If you join me in Genesis 22, starting with verse 1. After all of that instability, followed by the action of God, we see this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. This is one of those crazy, what, it, what is God doing? See, after, a, after walking a path that shows Abraham losing faith in God, trying to cultivate God's part of the promise on his own, it's reasonable to think that God might check to see if Abraham has really learned what he should learn by now. It's reasonable to think that, that God would, would toss him a test just to demonstrate where his faith really is, like a measure of effectiveness. Did you really get what we, what we just walked through together? Did it settle? Did it set in? It makes sense that there would be a test. Now, Abraham can obviously at this point see the fingerprints of God on his reality in a variety of different ways. In the security of of, of the well and, and of the land in having the air, he can see the fingerprints of God on his reality. He can see stuff that has happened. But has that changed his posture towards God? That's really the question at this point. Did any of that change his posture to God? Does, it, does he now operate with faith? Or is he still operating with compliance? What's the difference? Compliance and obedience are, are really easy to confuse, and they're also, it's easy for one to look like the other. They can, look, they can look a lot like the same thing. Now, we might comply with rules to avoid punishment. Those of you that drive the speed limit know that. Those of you that don't, that's another sermon. Um, we also might comply, be, we might be, be compliant to a certain degree with, uh, with instructions from, from a doctor or like a personal trainer. We kind of comply with them in our, in our own way, right? Right, Larry? Is that, you know, we, we kind of comply sometimes to what, um, you know, taking medication that a doctor might give us or um, doing what a trainer says, which is why I don't have a personal trainer. Uh, that wouldn't be compliance or obedience. It would just be ridiculous. Um, Sometimes this is obedience, 
But obedience includes a willful submission to authority. We can be compliant for reasons other than a desire to willingly submit to an authority. Submission is when you say, your way, not mine. So faith, as an outcome of love, leads to obedience. This test is, is it compliant because you don't want to get punished? Or is it obedience because your faith in me led to love and you trust me to do what I say? Love is the key difference between compliance and obedience. In Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20, this is at the end of the life of Moses. Uh, a few centuries in the future, what we're talking about today, Moses gives his last speech to the Israelites by challenging, challenging them to love God, obey him, and remain faithful. He says this, Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Obedience includes a willingness to submit, which comes out of a developed trust for the one to whom we submit. This means that trust is a byproduct of love. When we love God, we place ourselves in the position to obey him and remain faithful to him. Moses says that true life begins with loving God and is sustained with a growing love for him, and Abraham is being tested in this. What this means for us is this is all about relationship. God is testing Abraham and Abraham's faith in the love that God has for him. Now, but this test, though, from, from our, like, 4,000-year view here, uh, this is a little disconcerting. God finally gives Abraham a son, and now, after demonstrating difficulty and inconsi- inconsistency in establishing this faith, God is telling him to kill the heir as a test. This blessing I gave you, kill it as a test. Without context, without understanding the nature of God and his plan, this seems calloused, cruel, cold. What, like, this is a what-the-hell moment. We have clues right away, though, that something's different. Verse 2 is key to the rest of the story, because what we see in Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, we have this scene. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. In verse 2, we see God in initiating the test. 
He tells Abraham to get his son, his dearly loved son, and take him to Mount Moriah. More than a supernatural birth ties this story to Jesus. One sacrifice is beginning to point towards another. Now, even Mount Moriah is interesting. This place where Abraham is, he- is headed to, to sacrifice his son will be the place that, that David will secure in 1 Samuel. It's also the place after David secures, Solomon will build the temple. And from this very spot that this event is about to happen, one can look across the near distance and see Golgotha, the place where Jesus will be crucified 2,000-ish years later. Something is up. Something is happening here. If you take a look at this map, and I know it's a little bit pixelated here, what we have here, this, the Temple Mount, this is where we are talking about in Mount Moriah. And all of this, this complex, this this, this mount, which really, like Montana standards, is a hill, uh, kind of a hill. It's, it's a bump. So we're on Bump Moriah here. And you've got the Temple Mount here and the Kidron Valley that, that runs. Uh, the, the, all of this, you know, you, you'd be able to see very well. Golgotha is here, and you can kind of tell that, that there's a little bit of a, of a, a larger bump here. Golgotha is here, but with this little tributary coming down, Mount Moriah and where Isaac and Abraham are headed is in this area where Jesus will be crucified is right across right here. They're facing each other. What's interesting is this narrative that we have of Scripture. It it gives us this this data that we can actually find this stuff. And and this is not, we're not talking about uh, great distances here. All of these things that happened are close proximity there's archaeological evidence that supports this. There's also, uh, th- this is, is an historical narrative. The, the historians that will push back on the historical narrative of Scripture are, are they, they almost don't exist anymore because of how accurate Scripture and the historical record has been. We know that this happened, and it has to matter. Because the other thing, too, is with, with the way that this is all laid out, the tomb where Jesus was, was laid would be in this area as well. All of this stuff happens in the same location. There's something going on here. This isn't just a test for Abraham, but a test it certainly is. Genesis 22, back in the scripture, verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. I wonder what was going through his mind when he got up early. He's definitely about to do what God called him to do. But you wonder at this point, the things going through his mind. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and we will come right back. 
So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. Again, outside of context, that's, that's a, another really callous moment, right? Like, carry the wood that I'm going to burn you on. Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. On this hill, facing Golgotha, where Jesus would be crucified, we see another element that connects this sacrifice with the sacrifice to come. The sacrifice, the offering, is carrying the wood that would be used for the sacrifice. In the same way that Jesus carried his cross onto the hill of Golgotha, we see Isaac carrying the wood meant to burn him as sacrifice. The weight is being hauled by that which will be sacrificed. The burden is being carried by the sacrifice. Abraham would only know in this moment he would only know his faith in God. That's all he had in this moment. But we can begin to see that things are not as they seem. That something is happening. A plan is unfolding. We see Isaac kind of start to get wise to the situation. Like, so uh, where's, the, where's the sacrifice, Dad? And again, we see signs of faith that are born out of love. Where's the offering? I think with complete conviction, complete knowledge of his relationship with God, Abraham was not giving an answer just to shut Isaac up, just to direct, just to misdirect him. I think that what we see here is Abraham passing the test with a declarative statement, God will provide the sacrifice. The knowledge of God that Abraham developed through the growth of relationship with him led to his ability to faithfully declare God will provide. Genesis 22, 9 through 14. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Quick aside here. This is something that Harlan and I talked about a lot this week, about this moment. Like, Isaac is, is it's interesting. Isaac would be about 33 years old-ish at this time. Similar to another sacrifice that's going to come uh, 2,000 years later. But, but you think that, that how, like, like, Abraham is old. Isaac is still kind of in, in a little bit of his, he's kind of coming out of his prime. 
you know, but he's still kind of in that prime, and, and Abraham's old. Like, this isn't even like, like, you know, the, the Toby Keith song, you know, Good As I Once Was? Like, there is no good as Abraham once was that could probably take Isaac at this moment. So if Isaac is getting, like, Isaac's getting tied to, like, he knows what's about to happen. It's not, like, he's not, he's not a dullard. Like, I wonder why dad's tying me to the wood. This is weird. He knows what's happening. He sees the knife come out of his sheath. Why would Isaac allow this to happen? Why would Isaac allow this feeble old dude to tie him up and lay him on this wood that he knows is about to get lit up? Why would he lay there, continue to lay there, when the knife comes out of the sheath? There's only one answer that I know. Either he was like, like he fell asleep and didn't know what was going on, or the faith of Abraham was contagious. The faith that Isaac had in Abraham as a reflection of the, the faith that Abraham had in God. When Abraham said, God will provide, Isaac just knew it. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham re replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb on the mountainside of the Lord, it will be provided. Jehovah-Jireh, the name that we know, Jehovah-Jireh, is from the verb to see, and it means that the Lord foresees or the Lord will see to it. The Lord knows what's coming, and the Lord will answer what's coming. The Lord will provide. It was Abraham's faith that was tested, and in the faith demonstrated through the test, we see God's character. We see his love, but we also see that piece of his character that we can confidently call him Jehovah-Jireh. He will provide. He will provide. This wasn't just for Abraham. We know this because we see the long-distance outcome of this reality is foreshadowed by, that, that's foreshadowed by this event is the one that's made clear in John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. He gave his, own, his one and only son, Jehovah Jireh, gave his one and only son so everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him, Jehovah Jireh. Jesus will be the ultimate provision, the sacrifice that God provides for us to be reconciled to him, Jehovah Jireh. The only requirement for this provision is faith 
that, that what that name means is real. Faith in Jehovah, Jireh, God, the provider. Back to the story, Genesis twenty-two fifteen. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is the, what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. Not because you've complied. But through faith, you loved me. And through love, you trusted me. And with that trust, you obeyed. The covenant is confirmed. The reality of what, what Abraham was able to do is also the reality that we're called to do as well. The sacrifice, and, and when, when God talks about the sacrifice, he doesn't say, your son, right? He follows it with, your only son. In other words, the only thing left that could actually prove your existence, your very life. We are called to the same task, faith, that allows us to do what Jesus instructed in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, to give up our own way, to pick up our cross, and follow the path that he set before us. Again, using Abraham as our model, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates how this is done. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and she was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead. A nation with so many people that, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there was no way to count them. Vineyard, as we turn back towards worship this morning, this story demonstrates the measurelessness. Is that a word? Ashley, is that a word? Measurelessness. There it is now. The measurelessness depth of God's love for us. We realize what he has done for us, and we're invited into relationship with him. As our love for him grows, our faith expands, and that faith is evidenced when nothing we have is desired more than God. When nothing in this world is desired more than God. 
when all that we have can be laid down because we know that having him means more than anything else. It means that nothing more is needed. And that is the rest of the story. We go back into a posture of worship guided by this verse, Psalm 68, verse 5. The nature of the God that we worship. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. Amen.